Our reading this morning, our first reading, is from Psalm 13. To the leader, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dwelt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we give you thanks we, uh, for this word. We give you thanks for your spirit who is with us. And we pray now that as we sit with your scriptures, that you would attend to us in the real places of our real lives. Uh, we pray that you would be working on us, that we might become people more and more like this descriptor that Jesus gives in his Sermon on the Mount of the meek and the merciful, of the pure in heart, of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, of peacemakers. Would you do this work in us, we pray, even this morning. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So several months ago, uh, when we originally planned this summer series on the Psalms, we were thinking about along the lines of, of really teach us to pray. We had no idea at that time that a novel coronavirus would upend our lives as it has, or that the ever-present, ever-pervasive evil of racism in this country would be as, as exposed uh, as horrifyingly as it has been in recent months, uh, foregrounding in our collective consciousness, that which has been obvious to many for a long, long time, that racial injustice taints pretty much everything in American life, and that we have an urgent need to repent and root out this devastating evil from within ourselves, from within the church, and from in our society. We didn't see that coming. Uh, but now that we're here, teach us to pray feels even more relevant than ever. And this morning, again, as we absorb the news that yet another black man has been killed by police using unjustified deadly force, Rayshard Brooks of Atlanta, who found himself in an altercation with law enforcement because he'd fallen asleep in a Wendy's drive-through. 
there just there aren't any words that could do justice to the sorrow and the weariness and the righteous rage that so many are feeling right now, especially not any words of mine. Yet these words of Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, have been for thousands of years a cry of lament that sufferers and empathizers alike have taken up as their own words when there are no words in the face of unspeakable tragedy and injustice. The song of lament is originally, it's attributed to King David of ancient Israel, who longed to see God's promised kingdom come, even as his own life was in peril. And God's promise and victory seemed to be a distant dream in so many ways. The lament of David became the cry of the people of Israel for centuries as they took up this prayer as their own in times of exile and captivity uh, and subjugation to foreign tyrannical rule. And this prayer of lament became the prayer of Jesus himself in his own human life as he stepped into the story of Israel and indeed into the story of all humanity. It's this song of God with us in our wilderness journey, God in human skin on this earthly soil, taking up the risky mission of self-abandoning love in pursuit of justice, a cause that would ultimately cost his life at the cross before he would then, in power and glory, reclaim from the pit of death not only his own life, but ours as well. And this lament, how long, O Lord, has been taken up by generation after generation of those who follow Jesus and bring experiences of suffering to him, our suffering Savior, whom we come to know as we share in his sufferings. When we pray the Psalms, we pray God's words as our own words. We pray the words of God's people over thousands of years as our own words right now. We pray words Jesus learned to pray as words that we have learned to pray, as we continue to learn to be human in the way that Jesus lived out his humanity. And this practice of praying the Psalms in our gathered worship and in our private devotion is both a formative and expressive practice. It's formative because the Psalms shape our prayers and teach us to pray. It's expressive because the Psalms give us a vocabulary and a liturgy, borrowed words, if you will, by which we may give voice to our desire, our joy, anguish, confusion, impatience, frustration, dependence, gratitude, fervent hope, and praise. And this Psalm, Psalm 13, gives us words to cry out when there are no words. And this cry, how long, we should note, has long been a distinct cry of the African-American church for over, during over more than 400 years of oppression, brutal dehumanization, and unspeakable grief. Their cry has been, how long? And so when we take up this prayer today in our own lives, we enter into a holy practice of solidarity not only with Jesus, our suffering Savior, who lives and prays this psalm with us, but with all those to whom God has joined our lives, those whose experiences of suffering may be similar to our own, and those whose experiences of suffering might be so, so different from anything that you or I could ever know personally. And so praying Psalm 13 takes us 
through a movement from lament to plea to praise in which we bring our own sufferings to Jesus. And we also bring our neighbor's sufferings to Jesus. And we stand together in empathy and then enter together into this work of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus for the sake of our own healing and for the healing of the world. So let's just take a few moments to look at this movement of the psalm. And in verses one and two, we find the lament. There's this fourfold, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This isn't just complaining. That's not what lament is. Lament is taking our complaint to God because of who God is and because of what God has promised. It's not faithless, hopeless griping, but rather faithful, hopeful lament that what is falls so grievously short of what should be, of what God desires, of what we are made to desire, and what God has said will stand forever in his world. This psalm, it's the cry of David, it's the cry of Israel, it's the cry of Jesus, it's the cry of Jesus's people, it's the cry of our people, and it is to be our cry as well. Where do you feel forgotten? Where does God seem more distant or hidden than present and active? What pain do you bear in your soul? And what sorrow do you carry in your heart? Where do you experience the exaltation of enemies over you? Do you think of these kinds of things as the pieces of your life and, and the feelings that you have that, that you can bring to God? Psalm 13 teaches us that, yes, absolutely, God wants us to bring our feelings, our experiences, our suffering to him. So how would you answer those questions? What are these things for you? But also now think about your neighbor. How would she or he answer these questions? What burdens do your sisters and brothers carry without you that God has called you to carry with them? This prayer of lament, it draws us into the sufferings of one another, and it prompts us to listen and learn from one another and to empathize and seek, in the words of Atticus Finch, to walk a mile in another's shoes until we begin to feel as our own the burden carried by another, knowing full well that we can never know fully the suffering of another, but we can come to empathize as we listen in love and humility and open our hearts and our lives to one another. Verses three and four take us from lament to a place of pleading. Consider the plea. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Now, this plea comes distinctly from King David, the king of Israel, uh, for whom defeat would be a, a complete reversal of what God had promised to establish his kingdom through David, just as defeat of Jesus uh, would be a distinct defeat in the very mission of God, which is not something that you or I as individuals can necessarily say in the same way. 
But as we pray this prayer in solidarity, not only with David and, and all of Israel and, and Jesus, our King, we also recognize that the pleas that we lift to God arise from the spaces of lament as we look upon our lives and on our situations and recognize the great gulf that exists between what is and what ought to be, between the way that the world is now and what God has promised. And so think about it. What pleas arise in your own heart and in the hearts of your neighbors as you bring your lament to God and as you listen to those around you? What are the requests, the demands, the pleas that you hear? Will you take them up as your own and bring them to God? Will we as a community practice that kind of lament? Also, as we're thinking of this plea here as, as David is considering what uh, victory for his enemies might mean in light of God's promise, it might be helpful for you and I to reflect as well where have you or I been complicit with the prevailing enemies that perhaps some of our neighbors uh, recognize as those who have been exalted? Where have we been on that side of things rather than as co-conspirators with those seeking justice and relief from suffering? And of course, in our present moment, this so obviously applies to racial justice uh, and the way that, that white people like me have been complicit uh, as prevailing enemies over people whom God has given us to love, our sisters and brothers of color. Uh, where, where would a, a new plea arise as we enter uh, in lament, uh, in solidarity with our sisters and brothers, our neighbors? Will we let this Psalm lead us in pleading new pleas and in pleading even with concrete and specific requests that we can name before our God. Move along to verses five and six. The Psalm moves from a place of lament to a place of pleading and then finally to this place of praise. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist remembers God's faithfulness that endures even as suffering persists. And this phrase, but I, suggests such a profound continuity and discontinuity, doesn't it? That God, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, this God who has never turned his back on this world, is the God who is faithful, is the God who is just, is the God who has promised to bring to fullness his kingdom of justice and peace. Yet, it takes a lot of work and a lot of faith and a lot of singing a psalm like this to believe that and to trust that when so much of what we see and experience in our lives seems to speak such a different word. But the psalmist remembers, even in spite of his own experience of suffering and the reality of injustice that persists, that God has not abandoned him and God has not abandoned this world and God has not abandoned his promise. God is the initiator we are the responders. And so this profound statement, I will sing to the Lord, is one of faith and hope in the face of suffering. 
Walter Brueggemann says that our life of faith consists in moving with God in terms of A, being securely oriented, B, being painfully disoriented, and C, being surprisingly reoriented. And that's the journey that this psalm takes us on. It leads us out of a place of being secure into a place of disruption and disorder, and then brings us along on this journey of being put back together in the presence of God, fortified, strengthened, surprisingly reoriented to live differently, even in the presence of suffering. Brueggemann observes that the middle-class church historically has tended to pray and practice uh, a kind of Christianity that stays camped out as much as possible in that securely oriented place, in our certainties, in our status quo, in our comfort zones. And Brueggemann also points out that this is why most middle-class Christians miss the point of the Psalms. Because as Brueggemann writes, most of the Psalms can only be appropriately prayed by people who are living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to the raw hurts, the primitive passions, and the naive elations that are at the bottom of our life. For most of us, liturgical or devotional entry into the Psalms requires a real change of pace. It asks us to depart from the closely managed world of public survival to move into the open, frightening, healing world of speech with the Holy One. Psalm 13, if we dare to pray it in fellowship with God and one another, takes us on a journey to the edges of our lives where we may actually encounter God and experience the disruptive grace of God that leads to change in ourselves and in the world. As I've been reflecting on this psalm this week, um, I've been reflecting on um, a chapter from a book I mentioned a couple weeks ago, James Cone, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. James Cone was a, was a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and he reflects in that book on the work of the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr who in many ways, um, Niebuhr was one of the most influential American theologians of the 20th century. Uh, and for a white theologian, especially for one who was writing in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, Niebuhr was especially sensitive to the sufferings of African Americans. And he wrote and spoke publicly and eloquently about the evils of systemic racism and the centrality of justice in a Christian ethic. And in many ways, he really was a helpful ally to African-Americans specifically, and also to many other marginalized peoples in their pursuit of justice. But Cone points out something that's been sort of haunting me this week as I've been reflecting, and I hope will haunt us in productive ways. But Cone points out that Niebuhr wasn't as helpful as he could have been. When it came to seeking social change, Niebuhr's vision for justice looked and sounded a lot like that of Dr. King and other leaders of the civil rights movement, but where Niebuhr differed was in his sense of urgency. Niebuhr cautioned against seeking rapid change. Instead, he urged patience. And Cohn attributes Niebuhr's ambivalence as an ally to two problems. One was an empathy problem, and the other a theological problem. And the two are deeply related and they relate, I think, in a, in a profound way to the very psalm that we're considering today. So the empathy problem is that, as Cohn puts it, Niebuhr had eyes to see black suffering, 
But as Cohn writes, I believe he lacked the heart to feel it as his own. Niebuhr didn't prioritize relationships with African-Americans. He didn't listen carefully enough and long enough to individual stories of suffering to feel the heartache at the core of his being that matched the intellectual theoretical problems that he was able to, to pinpoint so incisively and eloquently in his work. So that's the empathy problem. The theology problem was the way he related to this very question. How long, O oh Lord? Niebuhr's focus was way too much on the not yet and not enough on the now of God's kingdom. And for Niebuhr, the primary answer to that question, how long, O oh Lord, was quite simply later, which meant that faithfulness in the here and now must look like patience. And to be sure, there's a theological tension here, right? At the heart of our confession of faith is our expectation that Christ will come again, and that at his coming, he will set all things right and bring the fullness of God's kingdom to bear upon the earth. And we know and confess, along with generations of those who've come before us, that we will not taste the fullness of God's kingdom until that day. And so our cry of how long is our cry of faith as we watch and wait for that day with the patience of hope. But at the same time, we also confess that God has established his kingdom in the earth, and he has called his people to bear witness to that kingdom now. In or, and to order our common life in ways that fit God's vision of the way things ought to be, and to draw upon the power of God's spirit within us and among us to wage a war of love on the evil within, among, and around us. And in that sense, we must see that the cry of how long is not only the cry of patient hope, but of a holy impatience that just can't wait another day to see things change. And that cry of how long, the cry of holy impatience in the face of injustice, has been the cry of the Black church for centuries. It's the cry of the oppressed who bear daily the horrific unjust burden of the way things are. And this cry is exemplified in a sermon that Martin Luther King preached in Montgomery, Alabama in 1965, where he preached this. How long? Not long because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you still reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long but bends toward justice. How long? Not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. King knew something about what the psalmist of Psalm 13 knew that the cry of lament does not arise from a faltering faith in the face of suffering, but in the fervent hope of God's promised future and the holy desire to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, not just someday, but now. Mario Powell uh, is a Jesuit priest and an African-American who lives in New York. And this week he published, uh, earlier this week, he published an article uh, in America Magazine, the Jesuit Review, where he writes this, How long, O Lord, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 13 is the cry of Black Americans. We have been crying out this question for centuries, but we cannot cry it alone anymore. Until you grow close to our suffering, until it fills your eyes and ears, your minds and hearts, 
until you jump up on the cross with black Americans. There can be no Easter for America. Friends, as we sit with this psalm, as we consider individually, wherever you are coming from with respect to racial justice, whether that's something, whether you experience personally as a, as a person of color in this country, the, the devastating effects of racism, whether you are like me, a white person who uh, has been awakening and is awakening more and more to the realities of, of how pervasive and systemic and destructive racism really is in, in our own lives and in this country, uh, or, or whether we're thinking about any other injustice at all and the way that we move toward one another in our sufferings. And as we think about our own tragedies and losses and disappointments that every single one of us suffers, the traumas we endure, and what it means to sit as people of faith and hope and love and lament over these things and moving from lament to plea to praise and moving toward one another as we do this. Let's consider just how significant this statement is that until you jump up on the cross with black Americans, Mario Powell says, there can be no Easter for America. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Praying Psalm 13, publicly, together, privately, and embarking on this journey of lament to plea to praise with one another is a pathway that God has given us as he's given every generation that's come before us. It's a pathway toward becoming this kind of person and these kind of people that Jesus calls blessed and that Jesus blesses to make instruments of his kingdom in the earth. May God give us grace to embark on that journey, to persist on that journey, and to be agents of his love and justice in the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.